John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 879.2C1125, certificate number 37850, Otokichi. As the hurricanes have come, they've passed in the middle of the sea. The advantages are made to last in the middle of the sea. Otokichi. Otokichi. It's Italian? Oh, Otokichi. Hey. Eight. He's got eight kichi. That's uh, Italian for eight Quiche. <laughs> uh, Otokichi um, is a Japanese name. I never, I'm very bad at pronouncing Japanese names because I don't speak Japanese. Not a word of it. No, that's not true. Domo arigato. And Mr. Roboto. Konnichiwa. Is, which is Japanese for Roboto-san. Konnichiwa. Uh, that's about it. You're about done? I think so. Samurai. Um, samurai. We learned tycoon. Shogun. There you go. Yeah. Uh, the shogun figure in this episode, actually. Well, Japanese doesn't have um, syllabic stress the way we do. Whew, I feel that syllabic stress every morning. They have other kinds of stress. They yeah. have like cram school stress. Sure. Um, so like, that's why, you know, we have a tendency to say samurai in English. And really, it's closer to samurai with like very democratic emphasis. Oh, like so in, no, no syllabic stress. In the eighties or nineties, when um, the prime minister was named Takashida, we wanted to say Takashida. Yeah, because it really has a uh, well, it's got a, a swear in it. Uh-huh. But <laughs> if you the, put the A before the S, it anagrams to something funny. If you rip the A from your letter sweater and put it before the S, in the letter A from his varsity sweater. Um, but it was really closer to Takeshita, you know, right. to the degree that you would almost swallow one of the syllables. Like anchor people would often say Takeshita. Otokichi. 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 We, uh, we live here, uh, we're, we're, we are recording this show here on the Pacific Northwest coast of the United States, uh, an area in what is uh, presently called Washington State. It's raining. Formerly part of Oregon territories, formerly part of the British Mandate, the District of Columbia or Columbian. Within a whisker area. of being part of Canada, That's historical right. and a geographic whisper whisker. That's right. The the uh, the the at one point the almost wholly administered subsidiary of the Hudson Bay Company. 
But um, another another term for this area is the Pacific Rim, and that kind of refers to what is effectively almost a, a, a hemisphere-spanning archipelago of islands that extend from Vancouver Island and Puget Sound, San Juan Islands, even you could say Vashon Island really is the beginning of an archipelago that extends all the way to Japan. You think of Vashon as the northernmost Japanese island? Well, the the easternmost Japanese <laughs> island. <laughs> it is. The, I mean, the Pacific Ocean is so huge. You can actually turn the Earth to such an orientation that seen from space, you would pretty much see only water with just tiny little dribs of archipelago at the at the fringes of it. That's how big the Pacific Ocean is. But in that in that era of exploration, or or maybe a little bit later on, the later era of exploration, it was um, you could sort of leapfrog uh, up the coast to Alaska, over through the Aleutians and down. Um, but cross Pacific exploration, um, starting with James Cook. Uh, was really a was really a, a kind of a an era that that attempted to tie the the nations of the Pacific together to to develop a kind of common too far apart and too culturally distinct to be a common culture, but because they they are literally half a world away. That's right. the implication of the fact that a full hemisphere of the world is one ocean. And yet it's really the, I mean, it's the most, they are the most proximate Asian. I mean, to come this way is, once it was a surmountable transit, uh, it makes the most sense. Why would you go from, why would you go from San Francisco to Shanghai via Goa? Right. And, uh. And I guess just the potency of those two cultural influences in the late 20th century, both the American influence on Eastern Asia and the East Asian influence on America, particularly its West Coast, it really has kind of created this pan-Pacific culture, right? Where, have, have you noticed this, that like you can stand in a, a, a plaza or a mall in uh, downtown... Honolulu, and it won't feel that different than a similar place in Vancouver or San Francisco or Osaka, or, you know, it's not even clear what, you know, you're almost in its own country, Pacifica, and these cities have a lot in common, even though, again, they're thousands of miles apart. Yeah, the 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 Chinatown in New York City is, is one thing. It's kind of a... Um... A little island or embassy. Yeah, but in in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Seattle, I mean, there it's it much more reflects a diaspora. the The interesting thing is that that isn't that regionalism doesn't go both ways. Obviously, there's a lot of American influence in Japan and China and Korea. Levi's and Coke machines, but you don't see really a Pacific Northwest influence, and it's mostly because. It's because we're we're slackers up here. That and also like we Seattle doesn't have an identity strong enough um, to in you know to uh, inject itself into it's Japanese culture. It's because we haven't tried hard enough. The Japanese worked at this. That's John. true. If we had really gotten it together, we could have kind of Salish style 
totem artwork all over the Tokyo subway. You know, what's interesting is that Salish-style totem artwork isn't really even a dominant form here in Seattle. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it seems as exotic. It is for tourists. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, some of this has to do with the fact that uh, Japan for uh, for a period, I mean, for a period that encompasses the late, the, the mid to late period of of exploration on the part of European powers, Japan was closed to the outside. The, um, the shoguns of that period, uh, starting in 1633 passed a series of edicts that not only prohibited European countries, or in fact, any outsiders from visiting Japan, uh, they made it an, an Island fortress but also prohibited Japanese from leaving Japan and visiting other places. Uh, Makes sense. If, it does. if your country's so good, you don't want other people to come in and ruin it. Right. It would be, it would be mismanagement to let people go to other lesser countries. Yeah, and come back and say, "Hey, you know, they've got really interesting pots uh, in these other places." It wouldn't like, happen because Japan has the best pots, and that's if, right. and people would just leave and be like, "You know what? I was disappointed, and I should have listened to the Shogun and just stayed in Japan." Japan Japanese would come back and say, "Pants." Like pants, it's kind of a good idea. And then off with their head immediately. I want a fork. Nope. And that lasted for over 200 years. And during that period, there was very limited trade allowed with, you know, the, I think in Nagasaki was the, uh, or Nagasaki? Nagasaki. Was the... Um, there is something called pitch emphasis, which means the... Um, Nagasaki? The pitch goes up, but the but the accent doesn't. Like the thing that we do is we extend the the duration of um, we oh Nagasaki. We, we, yeah, we extend the duration of the of the word, maybe even the volume. But in Japan, I guess the pitch goes up slightly. Nagasaki. Nagasaki. Well, hopefully this isn't offensive to anyone that speaks Japanese. It's got to be probably comical rather than. I hope they're having a good time at our expense. Uh, Nagasaki was the, was the agreed upon city that if anyone was going to try and conduct some trade with Japan, it had to go in and out of there. And by that method, they were able to pretty much control foreign influence. Uh, and even that, uh, even in and out of Nagasaki was, was extremely limited. And if you approached Japan, you were greeted with a hail of cannon fire. It wasn't a question of like, you landed and tried to get some food and water, replenish your stores. Like if you came close to the shore, there were defensive batteries that, um, that sent you away. Uh, but of course, Japan is a, is a maritime nation and fishing is a, you know, is part of their, their it's an island. survival. Uh, Japan is an island entire of itself. It is not a piece of a, of a continent. It is not a part of the main. And a rock feels no pain mm-hmm. and an island never cries. <laughs> but, uh, but there are a lot, uh, there were a lot during this period of Japanese that were out plying the oceans for, for, uh, delicious fish. And in one instance, um, in 1832, a, uh, a fishing ship by the name of the Hojun Maru, Hojun Maru, Hojunmaru. Don't even try. It's problematic to try. It's problematic to not try, but it's more problematic to try. Right. Uh, it was a um, 
I guess it was a it was a transport ship rather than a fishing ship. It was transporting rice from one province of Japan to another. I was hoping this would be a story about sushi. Yeah, I'm sorry, it's not. I guess it is kind of about sushi. You got to get your vinegared rice somewhere, probably via a transport ship like the Hojin Maru. That's right. The Hojin Maru was a was a sticky rice ship that was bringing bringing rice to you in Edo, uh, now known as Tokyo. Uh, where you where the the demand for sticky rice was higher than their ability to produce it. Where is it coming from? Uh, well, some, some other Japanese port. Uh, some other Japanese port. Um, the the protagonist of our story was born in Mihama, in Japan, which is a little bit north of Edo. But this ship uh, was crewed by a, a crew of fourteen. Oh, I thought it was like crudely built. It was crude. No, it was made in Japan. There was nothing crude about it. It was it was uh, it was the the soul of grace. But I had in the 14, ship. fourteen men aboard. It was a big it was a big enough boat. It had one hundred and fifty tons of rice, and in the uh, in the course of moving up the coast, it was caught in a storm and washed out to sea. And the the Hoju Maru Hojun Maru was not able to make it back to Japan and floated out into the Pacific, where it. Uh, where it sort of just was, I don't know, not be calmed, but it um, it, it was would, it would have had to fight tide and currents to get back. It, it's a sailing ship. It, it doesn't have its own mode of power. It's at the mercy of the wind. It's at the yeah. It's at the mercy of the wind. And and uh, eighteen thirty two well, in yeah. Japan, it would have been sort of prior to the age of steam. Well, 1832 almost anywhere. You know, that's that's that would be pretty early for steam. Anywhere, yeah, it would have right? been er, early steamship era uh but it it floated for 14 months wait what across the pacific now fortunately did they get lost (laughs) well they just i think they were going west they they couldn't get back and floated out uh floated out to sea and for 14 months floated around the pacific and you would think, wow. oh, well, there's 150 tons of rice. Yeah, they're good to go. All you have to do is, but they didn't have a can opener. They did well. They, they didn't did, have chopsticks, <laughs> they, and they broke their glasses. <laughs> uh, they did, you know, they could catch fish, but uh, ultimately, they it just was, got tired of sushi. They were like, "Does anybody want Italian?" No. What What happens when you're out at sea and all you have is fish and rice? Scurvy. There it is. Uh, they didn't have vitamin C. That's right. Scurvy ended up killing 11 of the 14 sailors. Oh, wow. And eventually they washed ashore here in Washington state and in, in Cape Alava down in the, in Southern Washington. What was going on here in the 1830s? 1830s. It's, uh, it's well, still Hudson Bay era. Yeah. Um, still, you know, pre-Pig War, pre-founding of Seattle, um, really kind of... It's de facto British territory. It is. That's right. Administered by the British. Uh, Fort, well, it would have been Fort Astoria. At the and, mouth of the Columbia. And, and the Columbia region of of Brit, Brit, you know, British America. What's your favorite part of Britain? Mine is Astoria, Oregon. <laughs> My favorite part it has, of Britain it has would the have same to weather be, as London. But. Let's see. It would have to be Mumbai. <laughs> um, so there were three survivors. One of them, the oldest, was 29 years old, Iwakichi. And then there was a 16-year-old, Kyukichi. And then the hero of our story, Ochikichi, who was at the time 15 years old. 
Uh, the three sailors survived. They were found initially not by the Hudson Bay Company, but by the Macaw tribe. Well, yeah, that's that's who most of the residents were in the 1830s. That's right. right. In the 1830s, the Macaw still uh, the the ferocious Macaw still patrolled the. Are they ferocious? Lake. Well, the Macaw were. I was looking. I was out there. Uh, I, I hiked Lake Ozette a couple months ago, and the Macaw Museum was closed because of the pandemic. But all the signage. Is in a lot of the signage is still in two languages, right? And uh, inspire you know uh, encouraged me to admire the Macaw tribe, but the, I don't know much about them. The Macaw, uh, as part of the you know the the Pacific Northwestern tribes that included the Haida and the Tlingit and all of the tribes of Puget Sound, they were not uh, they were. They were fierce. Um, they were formidable adversaries, and they made war on one another and um, took slaves. Uh, they they were not above enslaving one another, and ultimately, when they first encountered Europeans uh, in the the uh, the classic story of Nootka Sound, um, they they would mount raiding parties. You know, a, a, you would. You'd sail into the the harbor with your your British sailing ship and try to trade, uh, you know, iron knives and whatnot with them. And then in the night they would sail out in their canoes and raid your ship and kill you all and and, and take white slaves and take white slaves paybacks. So there were there were you know numerous instances of those early contact situations where where white sailors would be pressed into servitude so did they take the did they take japanese slaves so the these three japanese washed up on shore and the macaw took them as slaves Man, this, this really shows you that slavery is a colorblind problem <laughs> like if, we we are not saying enough about native american on japanese crime if you can picture the scene um although i'm sure they gave them immediately gave them some delicious vitamin c in the form of northwest blueberries and and raspberries and tasteless salmon berries and sa- hey salmon berries are good where actually i don't know where do, where did where, where do you get vitamin c in your diet around here just chewing on salal or something well, there's got i mean there's vitamin c in berries isn't there i think yeah, yeah. i guess um but then the macaw quickly in that at that point in time were trading with the british and um, fairly quickly brought the Japanese to brought these three castaway survivors to uh to Fort Astoria or to, to the Hudson Bay administrator, a man by the name of John McLaughlin. This is the site of modern day Astoria, Oregon, I assume. Yeah. So, um, which so, was so the know, Goonies weren't there yet. The Goonies were not there. It was not yet uh like a a cool place. It wasn't. It wasn't a home to all the tugboat captains. <laughs> Uh, or like the, you know, Astoria is the home of, I think the most, uh, it's the, it's the prized station. If you're a coast guard rescueman, because Because there's the most rescues. Yeah. Because there are so many people founder out there in the Columbia river bar, which has been on my list of topics since the very beginning of this show. It's covered with moss, the Columbia river bar. It actually, a lot of it is probably covered with moss. But I keep pushing it out because every time I do a Pacific Northwest episode, I'm like, well, I can't talk about the Columbia River Bar. Well, it has just happened well, again. Yeah, and we're going to, and so I'll cover it soon. I've been to a store. I like the implication that the Coast Guard wants to be in places where they'll do the most rescues. Yeah. If I was in the Coast Guard, I would be like, put me in Omaha. <laughs> I would like to ha- I would like to have the easiest desk job. It's a certain kind of Coast Guard uh, 
person. And I'm sure that like the Alaska, the people that are out at King Salmon, Alaska, they also get into some crazy, crazy scrapes. Because out there, there's really no distinction between the sky and the sea. It's all the same. Gray. And the <laughs> sky is full of crabs also. I had a, uh, I had a Coast Guard friend here who, uh, whose boat was the Midget, hmm. uh, which was, I guess, docked here or based here. And a, he was very proud that it is, the, it is the ship on the cover of the Jefferson Starship album Freedom at Point Zero. Which I could not picture, but uh, if you ever want to look at the cover of Freedom and Point Zero, that's a that's a coast that's takes it's shot on the deck of a Coast Guard ship, which is I think still based in Seattle, although at the time it was San Francisco, of course. Well, good for your friend and good for Jess- Jefferson Starship. Congratulations! That was that was kind of when they were in the middle of their transformation. Like, oh, right, from a good band to like, a medium. Well, good from bands? Jefferson Airplane to Starship, there's a yeah. there's a, a, a moment in the middle where they're not Bill Bixby or Lou Ferrigno. Right, they're just a weird thing with green eyes. I didn't mind Jefferson Starship; uh, they had some good tunes. You think that's a good era? But by the time, well, yeah, but by the time we got to Starship, boy, yeah, they, they uh, I dropped off. It's kind of like out of time. I was about to say, yeah. like you don't you don't want the hits. No, they weren't they they, they weren't as good. We built the city as a bop, though. We built the city is in the running for the worst song ever, right? <laughs> right along with Wham's uh, uh, "Last Christmas." The only reason you have to say this is because it's such an infectious song. The people yes. have already spoken. The fact that you have to complain about "We Built the City" means that it's already won. Billy Joel's "We Didn't Start the Fire." These songs, these songs, if they're all that survive of our civilization, we will be reviled by the futurelings. Did you know Bernie Taupin co-wrote "We Built the City"? No, I did not know that. I did not know that either. You know, Bernie Taupin is not what I would call the best lyricist, we, although... We've complained about his lyrics, yeah, lyrics before. And I think we've talked about Peter Wolf, who, co- who co-wrote the song as well on the Omnibus, and it escapes me why. Peter Wolf of the Jay Giles Band? Is that why? Well, he's the singer of the Jay Giles Band, and also had that very strong, a very strange music video where he danced like no, a crazy a, person. it's a different Peter Wolf. It's an Austrian-born... Music producer Peter Wolf and was I, was he part of uh, Peter Wolf was he part of it's a um, it's a Hesse uh, novel part of the Millie Vanilli episode did he write any songs for did he write Rasputin he he plays drums on Everybody Have Fun Tonight by that Wang Chung Prutin. Everybody Had Fun Tonight was also a terrible song but I I support it pretty pretty infectious. The radio station here was playing uh, Guilty Pleasures the other day, and it was just nothing but 80s cheese. And I realized that is now everybody's idea of a fun, bad song. It's just one particular genre. There could be fun, bad songs in every genre. Everybody But everybody was just playing synth uh, anthems from 1982. See, it's good. You you can't fight against it. It's already won. Anyway, John McLaughlin of the uh, Hudson Bay Company... uh, recognized that the possession, I guess, of these three Japanese castaways represented an opportunity. Because at this point, um, Japan and its refusal to trade with the West was a was a crazy thorn in England's side and in uh, all the European powers. They had opened up trade internationally macau was a portuguese colony and so was goa um what if the macau went to macau wouldn't that be crazy wow if the macau went to macau just because they got got confused on the on the 
on when they bought the ticket online. Uh, yeah, they, they got they, confused they, on Expedia. It was one of those where the the train station destination was like, and they were like, "There it is, quick!" They would just start enslaving so many Portuguese people. Hard to know. Hard to know. Uh, there were a lot more people in Macau than there were Macau, even then. But Japan was tantalizing, and part of the reason was that there was just enough exposure to Japan uh, for Europeans to understand that they were a uh, a nation that the European countries considered a peer. They were they had advanced art. We and liked literature. their art immediately. We did. Yeah. And very we, influential. We understood them to be a feudal society, but one that that was that was modern in many aspects. In the in the parlance of white racism, they are one of the good ones. They're one of the good ones. They're the white Asians. <laughs> uh, like they should put that on the license plates. And there had been Japanese who had made it to Europe prior to this. Um, the first, uh, the first were uh, two Japanese boys by the name and are known, I think, to history only as Christopher and Cosmos. See, that's what always happens. Yeah, Pocahontas goes to Europe, and then you got to call her Rebecca for no reason. They 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 all they, get they all get the most basic names. Yeah, Christopher. Come on, uh, and who knows what is Japanese? Christopher names. probably had a cool name, but um, you know. Francis Xavier, the founder of the Jesuits, That's your people. Uh, went out around the world and tried to bring Catholicism to Asia. He, he succeeded in converting some Japanese to Catholicism. And you, you wonder, here you are in Japan, you meet this guy who's shaved the top of his head. He tells you the story of Jesus. There's, a, there's, a, there's an element of, uh, I mean... That story was very convincing, I think, if you also had some conquistadors pointing their blunderbusses at you. But it's always it's always interesting yeah, to in, me. Who in Japan converts to that? Yeah, that's like, wow, good story. I'm kind of into this. Like, tell me more. I assume maybe marginalized people. Like, if you're doing really well in your own class structure, you're not like, uh, let's Google what other belief systems have to offer. Although... You know, they uh, these early converts often become uh, become translators. They become diplomats. In uh, Japan, they had to go underground, right? Uh, the the government pushed back against the the Catholic inroads. There? I mean, this was part of the reason that Japan sealed its borders. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, In the Scorsese movie, it seems like it's pain of death that's keeping these people on the down low. And it and it was. I mean, there uh, death was. Um, Death was the option, I think. Uh, there was, if you like, Christopher and Cosmos actually sailed across the Pacific on a Spanish galleon, and when they encountered um, the English, they then went to uh, they went to London. They were kind of, you know, an exotic fascination at first, but they then became just sort of part of a uh, part of just a, a a motley crew of sailors that all sailed with the uh, with the with well Sir Thomas Cavendish who was the first person to circumnavigate the world on purpose <laughs> all of the all of the original everybody else just did it accidentally yeah, they, they just kind lost. of kept sailing toward the sunset and then they were like wait a minute 
holy cats, look where we are. And they kept going. Whereas Cavendish, there was there were enough people that had that had made the circumnavigation that he set out to do it on purpose. And Christopher and Cosmos actually joined him as part of his crew. And if you think about a crew at the time, you know, you would have had a, a some Portuguese, you would have had some Italians, and these two Japanese boys had become fluent in um, in a few different languages, and they worked just as as uh, and they were Catholics by this point. So I guess ships crews were probably the first real multicultural, super integrated, units. right? Is uh, and and they were emigrating. Is that why they left? They they intended to emigrate for religious reasons. No, or? I think they were they were they went on the galleon as members of that crew. I mean, I, they, oh, I see. They, it it often job. starts as young boys who are pressed into service, or at least are working as sailors and. You know, they are pursuing maybe a life of adventure. Um, there was also uh, in uh, in the mid 16th century, um, the first Japanese person to uh, to come to Europe was Bernardo the Japanese, <laughs> who uh, who his last name is the Japanese, the Japanese who was converted by by uh, Francis Xavier and f- went with him. You can see why they have to add the Japanese because they renamed him Bernardo. Bernardo. If that guy had just got to keep his, his name, you would not have to say the Japanese. It's funny how uh, really to be accepted in society, they really have to, <laughs> even though we think that the Japanese are worthy of our attention, you're going to have to give up that weird name because we don't call people that. We call people normal stuff like Bernardo. Right. And, it's, and- it's a requirement of entry. Bernardo kind of became, he actually, I think, became an SJ. He became a Jesuit. I wonder if it's bound up with the idea of baptism, right? You, you're, you're christened with a new Christian name, and so to use your old name would almost be a, a sign of your heathen backsliding. Yeah, right. You take your Jedi name. Bernardo was, was even— Wait, Jedis don't use their birth names? Well, I mean, would you? Are, were you born Yoda? Uh, Qui Gon Jinn doesn't seem like it. Yoda is the species. He's a Yoda. He, he was born Baby Yoda, and then right. his Jedi name is Yoda. Right, and his wife is Yod, Yoda. Yojimbo. Yod, Yoda. Uh, Bernardo. It was hoped would be an envoy to Japan. Uh, he never made it back to Japan. Died in uh, Portugal. In the in 1557, oh. like he didn't. This so, was a so long time long before. before it ever would have opened up. Yeah. Um. But uh, but the but Otikichi and his two companions represented to John McLaughlin, who was the the Hudson Bay administrator, this tantalizing opportunity to, uh, because they were you know they were castaways. They hadn't they hadn't technically violated the the law, this was an all an accident, that if they went back to England with him, they could be part of an expedition that opened Japan, which was, you know, this absolute. This is actually like, McLaughlin. He's very ambitious just for a local fort guy to see the geopolitical possibilities. Well, except he was like a, he was a Hudson Bay big wheel. And I'm sure that. Plus he had that uh, Sunday panel show. John McLaughlin. That's Mo- right. The McLaughlin group. Morton Kondracki. I think that he probably was ambitious because he wanted out of freaking Fort Astoria. <laughs> I mean, if I lived in Astoria right now, I'd be like, come on, come on, get me a job, at least in Olympia. <laughs> uh, and so he took these three castaways to London to try to make this case. And unfortunately, the British government didn't see 
at the time the same possibility, uh, or they didn't want to get into it, I guess. Ken, we've uh, come up with some exciting t-shirt designs in the last couple of months. What can you tell us about t-shirts going forward? I like the December ones. After years of requests, we have finally decided there should be an omnibus shirt with a mail truck on it. Yay, mail truck shirt! And it's fun. It's got Mr. Zip driving the truck, that kind of nightmare-inducing representative of the post office's zone improvement plan. And he's having a fun time driving his mail truck on its last legs, and it says omnibus. And then there's a different shirt. About- he's, he's kind of ghost riding, isn't he? He's a little bit out of the truck, like he's only got one arm and and one leg. And he's leaning the out the right side, but that is correct. Yeah, that's that's right. the, that's the right side. His hood is up. It's smoking. He's yeah. He's quite a he's quite a rickish young man. Uh, he's a real daredevil here. Yeah. Huh. And then this is the de Havilland Beaver, right? You talk about the aviation works. I can't remember what this is. It is. It's the it's the de Havilland Beaver from the front end. Um, it's landing on a Alaskan lake with its with its uh, sea pods with its pontoons. That's, that's or sea right. pods, as we call it. That's right. It's a uh, it's it's a float plane, as we say in the in the parlance. Uh, it shows its very distinctive and characteristic radial engine from the front. So there's no mistaking the profile of the the Haviland Beaver. These are some good-looking shirts about some popular omnibus entries. Two new designs every month, so these will be gone at the end of December. Don't miss out. That's right. This ad is this ad has a time limit. You've got what? Two over two weeks. So Almost three weeks. Go to omnibusproject.com slash store. You'll always see the links to our two new shirts that our friend Dave has up for us at Mediocrity. You'll also find a link to our T Public store where we have a wide array of stuff with the Omnibus logo on it. Hoodies, uh, what else? Hats, I think. Mugs. Onesies? Phone phone cases. Yeah, onesies, but only in adult sizes. (laughs) Ha 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 ha. If you show up at my house in an omnibus adult onesie, yes, you, John? Can, you can spend the night. How does that sentence end? Maybe in my guest room, but definitely you can spend the night. Uh, so don't forget, if you're interested in omnibus gear for a limited time only, head to omnibusproject.com slash store. That's omnibusproject.com slash store. Do you think Otakichi and his friends just wanted to be repatriated? They just wanted to go home, probably. Yeah, and I mean, and they probably didn't intend to go home the long way <laughs> right. through London. Is that a shortcut? But it was probably preferable to being enslaved by the macaw. So it's a sliding scale for them. Yeah, you sort of take it, take take uh, you, you you go the path of least resistance, which in this good, case was around the you around take the, the world. bad. You take them both, and there you have the facts of life. Uh, eventually, the British didn't want them around. I mean, they weren't serving any purpose, and and the idea of repatriating them um, seemed. I mean, to try to establish diplomatic relations with the Japanese. Uh, where you couldn't just show up and take over like had worked for so many, many years. Um, there were all these diplomatic attempts, you know, the ships would appear offshore. They would send, uh, you know, a, like a, a rowboat 
hey, hi, just, you know, waving the white flag, like, hey, we're just trying to, and then the, the cannon fire. So there was a thought, maybe if we send these three back, having visited Europe, have, you know, learned English to a certain extent, uh, it would be an opportunity. And so they were, they were sent now, having gone almost all, uh, all the way around the world, to Macau, and um, and unfortunately, the the shogunate, shogunate law uh, meant that they could not be repatriated. They were not wait. They were not legally Japanese anymore, having no, been gone for a they while. They were or? legally Japanese, but they had. They had ventured out, and oh, right. had, had they returned to Japan, they would have been put to death. So Yikes. they had to— But it wasn't their fault, John. There was like a wind. Well, it doesn't matter. T- tell it to the shoguns, Ken. I can't tell it to the shoguns. He'll, he'll cut off my head. Well, that's exactly right. That was their problem. So they settled in Macau and kind of resigned themselves to a life in exile. Um, but enter another evangelist— this one, uh, not a Catholic, but but a real like um, Bible thumping German uh, by the name of Karl Gutzloff, who saw an opportunity to employ them to bring evangelical Christianity to Japan, and so using their help as now bilinguals, uh, they made the first Japanese translation of the Gospel of John. Really? Yeah. These these uh, fifteen year old sailors. Yeah. Because that's not who I would choose if I were gathering a literary murderer's row. Now tell but, me, um, if you're going to try and bring Christianity to Japan, what is it that's special about the Gospel of John that you would start there? Hmm, that's a good question. Does it have more fishing in it than the other Gospels? John, let's see, John. No. Right. No, mm-hmm. just the normal amount of fishing. I mean, there's John 3.16, which, as you know, is like a great place to start. Are you literally asking me why they chose that one instead of Matthew, Mark, Luke? Yeah, or, or why they started. I mean, where do you start if you've, only got, if you've only got the resources to translate a little bit of the Bible? Why would you not condense it down to a Cliff's Notes? I guess it's, if it's the unerring word, you don't want to condense it. Why John? Hmm... Makes the best, it's the most convincing version. I mean, the best gospel. I mean, John is the most distinct and eccentric gospel, which is maybe not a point in its favor. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have uh, so many stories in common that it's generally assumed they all derive from one now lost Ur text. Um, you know, John has. Uh, John seems to be a bigger picture. Uh, you know, the he's fa- f- further away, so he can see the larger scope. Well, it doesn't begin with um, Jesus's genealogy, for example. It begins with uh, you know a, a prologue about his uh, kind of divine pre-existent identification with God. You know, in the beginning was the Word. And the word was God, and and the the rest of the book is a bunch of signs demonstrating Jesus's divinity. So it's it's not a bad first stop. You know, you pointed out John three sixteen. It's got it's got a lot of the real mission statements of of the New Testament in it. Um, I don't know why you'd pick John instead of Matthew. Well, 
that's what that's what they worked on. Uh, I don't think that uh, Gutzloff was successful in e- evangelizing Japan. Um, there's there's also a similar uh, and converse story of an American who uh, who was and I'm going to use air quotes here shipwrecked in Japan. What is the, what are the air quotes for? He uh... well, uh, his name is Ranald McDonald. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Ranald McDonald. Ranald McDonald. First of all, Ranald is not a name. What, what is that? Ronald with a, with two N's and an A. It's or? just one A. It's just Ronald McDonald, but with an A. <laughs> Ranald McDonald. It really should be Ranald McDonald. It's like right. the fa- the fake fast food place from Coming to America. Right. Why wouldn't they have said Ronald? You don't name a kid Ranald. Maybe it was that they loved the name Ronald, but they didn't want it to rhyme. They didn't want it to rhyme. Like I- I'm sympathetic to that. And here, and here, in in the first of a few twists, Ranald McDonald was born in Fort Astoria. He's a Northwesterner, and he loved the idea of Japan. This was during an era when uh, Japan was, uh, and you know what? It might be Ronald. McDonald. That makes more sense, right? Ranald? Ranald. I bet it's Ranald. I don't know. I, I've never Ranald. known anybody who spells it like that, but. But the, we're talking about now um, mid 19th century. And Ranald McDonald uh, had heard uh, from, you know, from, well, learned about Japan. From Grimace? Because this was the era. Uh, his. His father was a was a Hudson Bay fur trader, and his mother was Mary McCheese. Was a Chinook. Oh, interesting. So he was a half Indian, half Canadian um, American, and decided that he wanted to uh, visit Japan because he met Otokichi oh, in Astoria at. Fort Vancouver. Well, when he must have he been was, a real good am, goodwill ambassador if, like, he inspired this guy to rowboat across the ocean. Or he whatever. was eight years old, and he met these three, and that began a kind of um, a fascination with Japan. Uh, also, there was within the kind of Northwest First Nations a legend that their ancestors had come across the Pacific. We got to get Tor Heyerdahl on this. And that's right. And, you know, this just syncs up with the Contiki completely because, because their legends of Easter Island were that that Pacific Northwest First Nations uh, seeded the long ears. <laughs> um, so his fascination with the Japan was at multi- multiple levels. He'd met these three castaways became enamored and then he had a connection to it through his uh through his mother's family and through his membership in the tribes so he signed on with sailing ships that were headed to asia and had himself set adrift he just, off, he's asked the captain to maroon him yes off the coast of hokkaido he pretended to have been shipwrecked. Oh no, my so, boat. So that he could be captured by uh by the Japanese. Was he afraid he'd be executed by the shogun? Well, he made a he made a case that he was um that it was he was an innocent 
And at this point in time within Japan, they kept encountering, you know, they're, the, by all accounts, their coastal waters were full of British and American ships just staying right out of cannon range, waving white flags, going, Hello? "Hey, we'd love to talk." Hello? It's like uh, it's like you know things in your e- email inbox that are like, "Hey, we'd like to tell you about these great new deals." Hey, this is Nancy Pelosi. We need your help. That's right. It's like those kids in the short sleeve shirts that were waving at me from across the street. Hey, are you just chilling? <laughs> I mean, even Admiral Perry when he arrived, he arrived with gunships and parked offshore, but his whole tone, his tone was pretty imperious. He wouldn't meet with any low-ranking government officials. Could he be any more imperious? That's a a Matthew Perry joke. He he really needed to, uh, that was a Friends reference. There was. Oh my God. Uh, He really needed to convey to the Japanese that if, you don't meet with us. We're going to, because Perry had steamships. He, he crossed the ocean on a paddle wheeler and they had a a new kind of cannon that could just have laid waste. And at this point, the Shogunate was, was, uh, kind of shaky on tenuous ground. So it was clear to the Japanese that like, this was not optional, but Perry's diplomatic tone was very white flag Hey, we just want to talk. Even, even though he's flashing the big guns. Yeah, the guns are there, and he won't talk to the local mayor. He only wants to talk to the head head honcho. But also at the same time, like, we don't mean any harm. We don't want to have to, you know, blow up your cities with these bombs. So what happened to Ranald? Well, so the Japanese recognized that this was now an issue, and the only English that they were able to learn was from these random Dutch traders who, unlike the contemporary Dutch that speak English better than we do, uh, they didn't really know English. We didn't have Baywatch yet. So the attempts to talk to American and English sailors had all kind of, like, failed. Uh, all, I mean, it, it only worked one way, because we had, we had uh, great translators in the form of Otokichi. So Japan wanted its own Otokichi. And they found it. We have an it. Otokichi gap. That's right. They found it in Ranald... McDonald, oh my gosh, who uh, who became a an English teacher, and he he had they they sent fourteen samurai to him who were like the fourteen most that's, educated samurai. It's like twice as good as a Kurosawa movie, right? Well, and this is this was you know this was why uh, the Japanese were so sort of uh, they they got after it. Yeah, they did, and they were. I mean, all the European powers were so entranced by them, but they, um, they, he was there for almost a year and taught the shogun how to, or the samurai rather, how to speak English. And then, a you know, a, a American warship sailed by in 1849 and they kicked him off of Japan and sent him out. Uh, but that was the beginning of the Japanese relationship to uh, to the West with their fr- being able to speak English. And it's incredible to think that MacDonald and Otokishi were kind of performing similar roles. In reverse, and they knew each other. They knew each they, other. They met in Oregon. And I, I don't know if they ever met again as adults. I'm sure MacDonald, if Otokishi was well-known in his time, I'm sure MacDonald sought him out. 
but there's no sign that they met. I'm loving it. But then uh, another opportunity appeared to return to Japan. And at this point, um, 1837, Otokichi was born in 1818. So he's still only 19 years old (laughs) at this point. um, And presumably wants to go home. Uh, But uh, an American, Charles King, made another attempt at establishing trade relations with Japan. And uh, they sailed with King on the, on his ship, the Morrison uh, where their ship was met with cannon fire. Did their ship uh, dare to dance the, 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 the shaman's, the dance? shaman's dance, the shogun's dance. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't want you to miss your trademark. Thank you. Uh, that's where, that's where Jim Morrison took his stage name after he became a Jedi. He got it from that ship. <laughs> So uh, they they went up and down the coast and uh, were uh, were greeted with cannon fire the whole way and so had to turn back uh, and at this point you know they um, they realized that they were going to live in Macau and Otukichi got a job with the British he got married he married a Scotswoman first and then uh, interesting in Macau in Macau and then later uh, after his wife died. Married a woman that was half German, half Malay. They moved to Singapore. I wonder what the kind. I wonder what the thinking about interracial European Asian marriages would have been in the early nineteenth century. Out in the out in the far is colonies, that, is the idea that it would have been frowned on. But you're in Macau, so who cares? I imagine that. Yeah, I imagine by the time you're in Macau, I mean, think about the intermarriage of so many different people. I mean, they're uh, and and all probably all. Uh, castaways, all shipwrecked somewhere, and they all come back to Macau. A, ragt- one- a ragtag crew of uh, of outsiders. That's right. The one, the one place. At this point, he changes his name to uh, he. He takes on his Christian name, John Matthew Otoson. Hey, John Otoson. He translated John, but not Matthew. Is yeah. is he is he trying to approximate like some Otterson or Otterson no. or some Otoson? I know, but- yeah. But is it supposed to sound yeah, like a, I, like an Anglo name? I think it was pronounced. Uh, I think it was pronounced Otteson. Um Although, but again, again, you know, Otokichi. You could he could just be Otokichi, but he has to be John Matthew. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, and he takes on. I guess he becomes. Um, he becomes like a just a regular citizen of Macau, uh, resigned not to return, but because he speaks. Japanese and English, and by this point, probably Malay and Portuguese, he's kind of invaluable as a translator. And in those attempts to, to make, uh, make treaties or uh, entente with Japan, he's used uh, frequently to sort of translate diplomatic documents. And it, at a couple of different times, or not just diplomatic documents, but He's used as an agent of diplomacy. He did make it back to Japan, um, and this is all still prior to uh, the opening of Japan by by American Admiral Perry, which happened in 1853. How did he get home? In 1849, he went with a British expedition again to um, to try and communicate with the Japanese. At this point, they were able to uh, to at least 
enter into conversation. Before the cannon started. Before the cannon started. Uh, and at, but he had to disguise himself as a Chinese person because had he, had, had it been revealed that he was Japanese, you know, they would, he would have been an enemy of the state and he claimed to have learned Japanese from his father. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, but then eventually he did, uh, he did return uh, to Japan and this was immediately after Perry opened Tokyo to the West, he went, uh, with the British delegation to, and, and played a role in negotiating the Anglo-Japanese friendship treaty. Oh, so Japan, the opening of Japan owes something to him. Uh, yeah, for the British. And at that point he could admit to being Japanese. He, he traveled in Japan. He met other Japanese. I wonder if he got to see his family when he's pretending to not be Japanese. He would have he would have still had living relatives for sure. Yeah, and I'm not it, the the record is silent on whether or not he returned to his mom and dad. Yeah, uh, but he and and he was you know he was at that point allowed to live in Japan, but he chose to return to Shanghai um, to uh, to live with his wife and children. He he never uh, he never lived in Japan again, but he. He the British like kind of made him rich as a result of of being this intermediary and and a person that had these these uh, different connections. And by the time he died, he was living in Shanghai and was had become a wealthy man. Fortunately, he died at the age of forty nine, which which to me seems like a well, God, when I was forty nine, I was still gallivanting about. 49 is between your age and mine. Yeah. So I'm still okay with people dying at 49, but you're, you're not that into it. Sure. 49 seems like it's, it's well in your distant future. It's what, a year away? <laughs> he died in Singapore. Yeah, in 1867. And, uh, and in, a, in a strange twist, his remains were repatriated in 2005. Oh, so like when I briefly lived in Singapore, he's, he was still buried, let's see, where is this? Oh, kind of out by the airport. Uh-huh. I, I never visited his grave. But, and wh- what happened? Japan wanted it back, or is he a hero now? The, the, um, the citizens of Mihama, uh, event, uh, his hometown, which is still a small town, 20, 25,000 people, sort of recognized him as a famous son hmm. and spent uh, many years researching where he'd ended up, uh, it wasn't clear. His burial site remained a mystery, uh, but he was buried in a Japanese cemetery. So they had to figure out which, which plot he was and, yeah. and find the remains. And they wanted him back. So his remains were repatriated in 2005. Uh, his story was, uh, there was an attempt made to tell, or not an attempt, it was successful. The movie was made in, uh, in the 70s. Like a Japanese movie? No, an American one. Uh, it was called Kai Ray, and it starred Johnny Cash. As Otokichi? No, as McLaughlin. <laughs> uh, but it was... Wait, I, I cannot think of a single movie where Johnny Cash plays a dramatic role. Yeah, this is Johnny the one. Cash is an actor, and only for projects he really believed in, like The Life of Otokichi. It, um, oh, I guess it was in the 70s. It was, it was in 1983 that this movie was made, so it was peak Johnny Cash. Maybe right before the highwayman, 
So Johnny um, Cash is just high out of his mind. Yeah, it was a it was it was a it was a big budget movie for the time, but it was it was kind of a flop. It's um, really funny. But there's an there, speaking. When of, I think of Japanese history, I don't know about you, but I think of Johnny Cash. Right, and and uh, this is the Man in Black. He's he's already pretty. I mean, he doesn't read as a British Canadian. <laughs> is the thing if you can imagine him going back to. Back to London with his Japanese charges and saying, now, Mr. Prime Minister. Well, I mean, speaking of the Pacific Rim, I guess Japan is part of the Ring of Fire. And that concludes Otokichi, entry 879.2C1125, certificate number 37850, in the omnibus. Listeners, we appreciate your... uh, Attention to the omnibus in your era. If you are uh, interested in the foibles of our era, John and I were on social media at Omnibus Project, at Ken Jennings, and at John Roderick. Uh, There was a lively discussion group about the uh, podcast uh, on Facebook, as well as Reddit and Discord. Look for the Futurelings uh, on any of those platforms. Uh, we were available via email at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Please correct our Japanese pronunciation, um, but not our slurs against the Dutch. We stand by those. That's right. Also, our bad Italian accents. Really an important part of the show. They really are. For some reason. Uh, we received physical mail at Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744. Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I just realized, I don't know if I'm going to be able to open. Do you need a pocket knife? I have a little pocket knife. Let's see if it's up to the... This thing is really taped. It's taped. I just, I was going to open this, and then I realized it's going to take, like, so much more tape cutting than I would have thought. In the the meantime, do you want to look at this wooden postcard we received? Oh, yeah, look at this. I don't think we've ever gotten... This must be the first postcard ever. It's a postcard made of wood. Uh, it's from the New England Aquarium. And I, it has, I don't think they sent it to us. It has a picture of a penguin on it with a strange, like, kind of arty backdrop, except it looks like it's splattered blood. So it looks like the penguin is a murderer. I've seen penguins on the snow, and often the snow is just smeared with pink and green like that because of the color of the... That's their poop? Of the, uh, the color of the fish yeah. and, and algae in their, or shellfish in their poop. So written here, it says, COVID update 2020, colon. The African penguins are doing their best to keep group morale high during these dark and trying times. Wait, the New England Aquarium is telling us this? Or the sender of the postcard is telling us this? Well, the sender of the postcard is Sparky. And Sparky is telling us this. Sparky has written, Sparky has a very cool handwriting style that is taking advantage of the way that the ink kind of bleeds into um, into wood. That's uh, not something you see a lot in postcards because they are so rarely made of wood. Yeah, it's it's almost taken on a, a calligraphic quality. Anyway, Sparky goes on. What spirit? Wish that I could say the same of the rock hoppers. No real surprise, I suppose. Your friend in time, Sparky. He's got a real anti-rock hopper agenda. Thank you, Sparky. I really like, kind of like that illustration of the penguin. Uh, the part of part of the the postcard here says wooden postcard made responsible with sustainable something something something. 
as though a regular paper postcard yeah, is that's... not sustainable. No, what you want is to use a lot more wood. That's right. In your in your postcard that's by making right. it out of a layer out of solid of plywood here. I still can't get this thing open. What's in there? You're you're working. Okay, it's open now. You've got foam. What is it? It's still taped in and bubble wrap. Really, really wrapped. I'm wrapped. Keep cutting. Did I read the name? It's from Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff Jeff is heir to a packing tape fortune. <laughs> Jeff got a lifetime supply of free packing tape by being the millionth customer at a True Value Hardware when he was a child. Yeah, Ken's got Ken's got a look of determination now. Go, Ken! I can't tell if whatever this is, I'm going to be so delighted, or if I'm just going to be immediately let down because of all the work. It Why does it have to be packed so, you know, keep stay delicate it, with it? It must be something very, very fragile. Off comes the bubble wrap. Wait, maybe he just sent us a huge ball of tape. This is like taking off the bandages one layer at a time at the end of a Twilight Zone episode. All right, what is it? Oh, it's a framed something, a framed picture. Jeff says he finds, uh, he enjoys the podcast, which he finds phenomenal. And he sent us a collage he made of you and I. Oh, really? A collage? Well, Collaged out of what? It's got some photographic elements that he appears to have then added paint and maybe metallic ink. So it's a multimedia piece. Apologies for the awkward packaging as I didn't have any appropriate boxes and had to jimmy something up. Jeff, you don't have to apologize for an amazing packing oh, job like comes. this. I like that it's framed with a white frame. Oh, look at us there. Oh, I like that. We should hang that in a place of pride. It is nice. I like how I barely appear. Like I have one eye and one nostril just kind of floating into the You've frame. You've got one eye open. Uh, but you're you're talking into a microphone and gesticulating. I also have a different kind of microphone. Yeah, we really, we, have, we really have our bases covered there. You're wearing maybe a scarf? A scarf. You look, you look like the, the, the fourth Doctor Who. I'm looking at the viewer, whereas you are looking up into the sky as though, as though deep in thought. Jeff, that is a lovely uh, piece of work. Yeah, thank you so much for adding to, the, to our decor. Uh, you, uh, so yeah, uh, please send us weird things that take us minutes to mm -hmm. open because it makes the show longer. Do not send us a giant ball of tape just to confound Ken. Send us like a giant bubble wrap thing that just has more levels of bubble wrap in it. And then you get to the end and there's... It's a wad of hundred dollar bills. It's a single coffee jewel. Julie. <laughs> Julie? Is that what they were they called? They only work if you have five of them. <laughs> they have to fa change the phase of the coffee five times back and forth. Um, we appreciate, uh, all these, uh, offerings, the most direct way to show your support of the show is by supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com and slash omnibus project and see all the cool perks and benefits that are available to those who chip in a few bucks a month. It, uh, it keeps the show going strong. Keeps it fresh. I don't know if it keeps it fresh. It absolutely keeps it fresh. Every time you... When the money goes up, are you like, I'm going to research uh, more interesting topics yeah, now? Every time you text me and say, hey, our Patreon is up to X, I go, I'm going to try harder. <laughs> <laughs> the Patreon's kind of plateaued a little bit now, so maybe uh -oh. that explains why. Uh, uh -oh. Is that going to cut off your effort? Well, no. I mean, I'm still, I'm still giving it my all. I care. But we need uh, a you lot. know, But uh, 
a, a new burst of uh, a new burst of vitality in the Patreon in 2021 will yeah. help carry the show forward. Ken and I will will. I mean, you know, Ken's got a lot of other job offers. People, let me just put. Let me just break it down for you. He doesn't have to do omnibus. He's rich. Ken's a millionaire. I mean, which is not to discourage you from supporting the show. It should encourage you to support the show because because you could, know I could just f off any second. Ken's like, oh, my hot air balloon is here. My my freaking you know solar powered dirigible is here. Bye. And I'm like, wait, Ken. We're gonna start doing the show on dexamethasone. Hmm. Just to just to energize just it. Really, we'll do like just nine to, episodes just, in a single day. Just to really rev it up. <laughs> Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived or how long Ken continues to feel like the Patreon is significant enough to justify doing this show. I have a number in mind. <laughs> you guys better hit it. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.